Good morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue in our Ephesians series. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 16, and I'm going to I'm going to preface and say, I'm going to do something this morning that really makes me mad when other preachers do it. As an expositional preacher, it drives me crazy when preachers use the same letter for their point all the way through, and then they try and cram the sermon into those points. The text should drive those points, and then you're able to do that. But sometimes I think preachers come up with a, woo, hey, we're back. I think preachers come up with a good little acrostic or they come up with PPPP or BBBB and they try and cram a sermon into those pre-created acrostics. But I think the text gives us that this week. And so we're able to break that rule a little bit. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 16. And, and let me just tell you, getting this passage of text, getting this, uh, this, this text to, to, to preach in one week is, is nearly impossible. This is a three to four week text right here. But I'm going to do the best that I can. We're going to focus primarily on verses 11 through 16. But let's go ahead and read the text and then we'll get into the Word of God today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and we just actually read this in Psalm verse 68, uh, chapter 68. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would control my tongue, that you would hone my focus in on what it is that you displayed for me to share with your people today. And Lord, that you would receive all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, there's about three or four weeks here, and I'm going to cram three or four weeks worth of teaching into 45 minutes, so I'm going to do my best to do that. My hope this morning is that this text will continue to shape how you think about the role of the church in the world. We've been doing a lot of that, especially since we, Paul shifts gears here in chapter 4 and he starts talking about practicum, and before he was talking about doctrine and the foundation of why we're going to now act in a certain way. So, I want to see that what the text here tells us about the culture of the church. What it is that, that is actually the church. And so my hope this morning is that we'll continue to be shaped by Scripture. So I want to look at four things that I think present themselves in order in the text. The people, the purpose, prevention, and a picture. We're going to see all of those four things. So if you're taking notes, you can put those down. We're going, to, we're going to see it come through in the text. We're going to see the people, the purpose, some prevention, and the picture that God has painted for the church. So let's start with the people. So as we think about 
a culture of spiritual growth, as we think about a church that grows together, serves together, loves together, lives together, the first thing we need to note is the critical role, and I think Pastor Justin touched on this last week. He asked us to be praying for our leaders that are put in positions of leadership and spiritual leadership and teaching. He asked us to be praying for our elders and, and those that are leading in the church. So I think he, he, he sort of covered that a little bit, but I think it's important that we note the role of spiritual leadership in the growth of the church. So without distracting from sort of the spiritual uh, resources that are available in the Word of God, with, without denying the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, I think Paul identifies here the fact that God gives people to the church as a gift. And one of those groups of people is your leaders. Chapters, again, just a quick reminder, chapter 1 through 3, we're, we're talking foundational doctrinal things. Then he shifts to application, and one of the first things he mentions is leadership. So it's important that we pray for a, a unified leadership. We pray for a strong, healthy leadership. And I'm thankful to be a part of that team here. There is a oneness together. As he mentions, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And let me just remind you that unity doesn't always equal agreement. Don't confuse those two words. Sometimes there is some disagreement, but there is still unity in that disagreement. And so don't confuse unity with disagreement. Even in our marriages, don't confuse unity with disagreement. There are two specific different definitions of those words we can be unified and still disagree paul identifies that jesus has given certain people certain offices certain groups of people in the church look at verse 11 in particular if you look at verse 11 he says and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He mentions everybody in, those verse, in that verse right there. He starts with offices. He then goes to the, uh, uh, the, the, the lay members of the church and in the, he says everybody involved in the local church. Everybody, until we all attain to this. So he says, I've provided people for the church. You are a person in the church. You have been provided by God. Now he specifically names some offices. He names some people. He says evangelists. I don't think you... Um, get an exempt card from evangelism if you're a Christian. So he's addressing evangelists here. Everyone in the church should be an evangelist. I think in particular Paul's addressing those that maybe go above and beyond. They get a little bit out there and they get, they, they've sold everything and they're living on the road. Maybe he's mentioning those. But he's also not giving us an exempt card. I, I, I see evangelists as those guys that probably have more lost friends than Christian friends. They're just in it to win it. They're out there diving in. They're putting their neck out there. They're risking. That's an evangelist. Someone who is out there whose focus is on, I've got this message of the truth of the Gospel. And there's people around me that haven't heard it. Or if they have, they haven't heard the right version of it. And so I've got to correct the story. In, in the American culture, I think we spend a lot of time correcting the story. You go overseas to, to, to some distant part of Africa, somebody's probably never heard the name Jesus. Here in America, they've heard the name Jesus and it hasn't been represented well. There's a different level of evangelism that, that is required even in our context. So he says, he names some evangelists. He, he says, uh, he says 
there's some people out there that are plowing new ground, that are, that are focused on getting the truth of the gospel out. Those people are a gift to the church. They're a gift. Pastors and teachers. They're a particular group of people given to the church as a gift. Jesus' strategy is to call out people ultimately for His own pleasure, for His own glory. How glorifying is it when God calls someone out of darkness into the light? Who gets the credit for that? God gets the credit for that. That's why there's no glory in self-made millionaires and self-made this. That's all self. Jesus' strategy is to call people out. He's building His church. We are fellow citizens. There's all kinds of conversation, all kinds of talk about people. We are citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, if you remember from Ephesians chapter 2. That's the exact thing that He said. We are fellow citizens with the household of God. Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to help, what? Grow the church. He sends Titus to Crete in order to what? He said to, to Titus, put what remains in order, he tells them in Titus chapter 1. Rather than giving them a church manual, he tells them, find qualified leaders. And here's what a qualified leader is. It isn't the person who writes the biggest check. He says, this is what we do to grow the kingdom of God. Rather than giving them that church manual, he says, let's get some qualified leaders and let's grow up disciples in the Lord. People, people, people. The right kind of leader is essential in disciple-making in the church. If you don't have disciple-making leaders, you don't have a disciple-making church. And we should know that as a church. Because leaders sometimes can be called to other places. And if you replace a disciple-making leader with a non-disciple-making leader, you will be a dead church. If you're getting ready to move and find a new church, disciple-making leaders have a disciple-making church. So it's important that we recognize the people that God has gifted the church with. Spiritual growth. And we'll all see this in a moment here happens as people that are gifted with the Holy Spirit begin to disciple others. And it's not limited to the leaders. Hear this. There's a number of reasons that we should understand this. Because God may be placing a special calling in your life. Maybe God is calling somebody in this room right now to be a leader in the church. You should go to your leadership and have them confirm that calling. Maybe you're visiting with us and you're from another church and you're feeling that calling. You should go to your leaders in that church. And if they are disciple-making leaders, they can confirm your calling. Maybe some of us are putting more faith in programmatic Christianity than disciple-making Christianity. Programs and bylaws and structures and services are not the total sum of ministry. These are venues in which people grow in the Lord. But they are not the end-all, be-all. People-to-people contact results in discipleship. And perhaps, perhaps, we're putting too much faith in programmatic Christianity and not organic, individualized, love people-to-people. Without people inside the ministry doing the work of ministry, there is no ministry. So if God brings a godly teacher across your path, you should see that as a great gift. If God brings a spiritual friend into your life who, who tells you things that you don't really want to hear, tickle my ear a little bit, friend. And your ear doesn't get tickled. Your heart gets challenged. That's a gift from God. That's not somebody pestering you about your life. Godly people are part key to the church. So thank God for them. Listen to them. Follow them. 
and check them. Because if they're not in alignment with the Word of God, then they could easily fall into a category we're going to talk about in a minute. Schemes. False teachings. So if you are a believer in Christ and you don't have someone in your life that is speaking into your life, you need that. First ingredient for a healthy church culture is people who are sent by God as gifts to the church. The right culture is created by godly people gathering together with a mission in mind and they make disciples. I was texting back and forth with someone who used to go to the well that doesn't come here. And he was thanking me for the um, time that we spent together and the impact, I think was the word that he used, that I had on his life. And my response to him was, well, of course, I'm so great. No. My response was, the impact you had on me is ten times greater than the impact I ever could have had on you. You discipled me, my friend. In order for the church to accomplish the God-given mission that we have, we must be making disciples, and that takes people with people. And again, without people inside the ministry, we're not doing ministry. So that leads us, as Paul walks through this, that leads us to the purpose. The second aspect of a good church culture is understanding the purpose behind the ministry. When I uh, recently interviewed, and I hadn't interviewed for a job in a long time, but when I recently interviewed in a job, he said, what is your mantra? Everybody's got one. What is it? Well, that was, that was kind of a weird. I hadn't interviewed. You know, the last job I applied for, I was weed-eating, so like, there wasn't a whole lot to worry about my mantra. I said, well, my mantra is mission, men, self. I got it from the U.S. Army. Mission, men, self. If I don't know what your mission is as an organization and I won't be able to rally men behind it, and I won't even care about myself enough to be behind it. So I've got to know what the mission of this organization is in order for me to be able to lead people in it. Because if I don't like your mission, I'm not going to send any men into the fire for it. In order for the church to accomplish the God-given mission of the church, we have to understand the purpose. So the second aspect here is, in church culture, we should have a purpose behind our ministry. So what does real ministry look like? What is the real purpose of ministry? Again, I feel like Pastor Justin hit this a couple weeks ago. But I think a good reminder is that while God gifts the church with leaders, it is not just the leader's responsibility to do ministry in the church. There is a purpose and that is drawing others into the church, into the faith, by sharing the gospel with them and growing ourselves in that process. Some of the hardest things I've ever done was have to realize that I was the one that needed to repent. That's hard. When you get into it and you get into, you get into a conflict with another brother or sister, you get into it and then you realize, man, when brought up against Scripture, I'm actually the one that needs to be apologizing here. But there are three important phrases that he uses here. And we're going to see them. He says, equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body. The word equip there actually means, in the Greek it actually could be translated being made sufficient. That's sort of the the best English translation. It means being made sufficient. So wait, if, if we are to equip the saints, if we are to make the saints sufficient for the work of the ministry. Ministry leaders are called to identify what is broken and set things in order. He told Titus that, he told Timothy that. But it doesn't simply involve things, like I said earlier, programs, structures, different things. This is not just about evangelism. It's about the spiritual growth of those working in the ministry. 
salvation, your acceptance of the gift of salvation is only the beginning. That's why it's called the work of the ministry. Now, ministry can be fun. There are times that it's fun. Ministry can be very fun. Ministry can be very painful, too. And if you take painful and fun and you mix it together, most of us could describe our job that way. It's work. Sometimes it's fun, but a lot of times it's hard. And a lot of times it's painful. And leaders are to equip saints for that work. This creates a camaraderie. This creates a in-the-trenches-together camaraderie in a church body to be made sufficient. It's a word that, that, that actually also is used in Matthew for putting bones back in the joint and making them work properly. Again, being made sufficient. That joint is now sufficient. Matthew also uses the word to describe mending broken nets in Matthew chapter 4. It's, it's, it's this bringing together to create the ability to what? If you're fixing a net, it has a purpose. It is to catch fish. So ministry leaders are called to identify that, set things in order, and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And this, again, isn't limited programs spiritual leaders are called to equip the saints and constantly care for spiritual needs of the people now that's an interesting statement we are to constantly care for the spiritual needs of others so does that mean that the pastor is the one that has to do all the hospital visits and all the home visits and all he has to constantly care for the spiritual needs no that's not what that means. That means that he should equip the saints to be on the radar screen constantly to care for others in the community, in the body, and in the home. There's something greater in view here. There's a, there's a purpose here that, that, that sometimes I think we miss. The vision is to set things in order so that ministry work happens all the time. The body is built up. The role of spiritual leaders is to help the saints to be equipped in such a way that they are healthy enough to care for the others. To talk about the Gospel. You know, we often, we often sort of picture pastors and elders. We sort of picture them, and especially me being 20 years in the infantry, and I always pictured pastors and, and, and elders as kind of the, the guy who pulls the sword and says, follow me in the battle. When in reality, he's the medic that's running out under fire with no weapon on his back. And he's, he's, he's mending up that person that fell in battle. That's really, the, that's really the picture of a spiritual leader that, 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 we, that, that, that Paul is actually describing here. We have Americanized our, our, our picture of our pastors and we've said he should be drawing the sword and charging into battle. That's the first guy to get shot, by the way. No. I think we need to sort of change our imagery there. We need to see them as a gift. Boy, when you're laying wounded in battle... You're not worried about who's waving the sword right at that moment. You're screaming for a medic. And so we should be viewing the gift of people in our church. Those that are coming along and being wounded and those that are coming along and they are healing those wounds. So it is our role as spiritual leaders both as pastors and elders and as spiritual leaders. Some of you are spiritual leaders in your groups. Some of you are spiritual leaders in, in, in your contexts. And sometimes we have to put the sword in the sheath and pull the medic kit out. The role of the spiritual leader is to help the saints be equipped so that everybody is able to do that. The effect of the body is that the body gets built up. The church functions in a healthy way. 
We live on mission together because people are spiritually healthy. And so the vision here is for something greater than just just the spiritual health of, of individuals. Because when we are healthy, we can then continue the battle for the lost. The purpose is to engage spiritually healthy people for a purpose that is greater than themselves. The oldest mindset there that the pastor goes and does everything and we all sit in the stands and watch, that is antiquated and that is unbiblical. This couldn't be further from the idea that God had for the church. And quite honestly, I think the American church has been set back a hundred years because of that mindset. We have made ourselves an ineffective and unfruitful organization because we have not viewed our leadership as the gift that they are and the medic that they should be. You give a medic a sword, he doesn't know what to do with it except cut somebody open and fix what's broken inside. So that old mindset passes away. And Paul reiterates it. He says disciples are the best thing to be created for, mo for, for mobilization. The church is not an audience. They're an army. And so, let's view it that way. How do we actually view the church? How do you individually view the church? Is it just an entity? Is it a checked box for your weekly rotation? For your schedule? Are you here because you've just always done that? What is our actual view of the church? Do we see the church as a place for spiritual needs being met? but only mine? Or is it a place where we can say, man, I need filling and I'm going to fill someone else while I'm there. Simultaneously. This happens simultaneously. We have sometimes viewed the churches, I've got to go there and I've got to get myself in the right spot before I can do anything. I don't, I don't see that where it says you've got to be perfect, it says that the leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Helping them become sufficient. That means you're not sufficient. Because if we were sufficient, then Jesus would not have had to put on flesh, leave the perfection of heaven, and come here and live in this creation that turned on Him and became sinful. If we were sufficient, then Christ died for nothing. And we have no faith. And we can all go home. But verse 13. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. And that means mankindhood, not just. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. John Piper said this once in a sermon that he preached at a conference I was at many years ago. And I had to look it up. I couldn't remember the exact text, I mean, I just remember the conference. So I went to the conference website and I found it. And he said this. He, he, he was preaching on the topic of ministering one to another. That was the topic that he was preaching on. He said, as the church lives on mission, she exudes the aroma of Christ-likeness. In the same way that the aroma of chocolate chip cookies and cinnamon buns and coffee is often equated with hospitality, so too, the aroma of true godliness is. It is something powerful when our church smells like Jesus. Well, our church won't smell like Jesus if our homes don't smell like Jesus and if our hearts don't smell like Jesus. 
So what is the purpose of ministry? The purpose of ministry is for leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ and the ultimate glory of God. You can write that one down. This is the purpose of ministry. The purpose of ministry is for leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, and the ultimate glory goes to God. And so in order for us to take the people that God has given and apply it to the purpose, there have to be some preventions in place. Right? They take a... a, You kids have ever seen... Well, you probably don't watch many rodeos. That's a terrible context to try to get you into. All right, but the bull... He's in the, they got the gate, and they got like three guys holding the gate, and the bull's like just riled up, and he is ready to pop out of that gate, and it takes like three people to hold him. That's called a prevention. They're preventing that bull who is just ready to roll. There's some preventions in place. And then they let him go, and he does his thing. My dad used to say, and this is not a coined phrase to my dad, but he used to say it all the time, that, Zeal without knowledge is like wings without feet. You ever heard that? He said, son, you can get up in the air all you want, but you've got to land someday. So there are some preventions in place. The previous verses, they're, 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 they're a positive vision for the church. We're all like, yeah, people, purpose. We're excited, right? Paul recognizes that spiritual growth is not only forward-looking vision, but it is also something that avoids certain ditches. You get the engine all riled up, and you start down the road, and if you lose control, you end up in a ditch. And so Paul says, hey, the body of Christ is not only a bunch of people getting together and growing spiritually, and we have a purpose uh, of reaching the lost and growing one another, but... The body of Christ also has has some preventions in place. Verse 14 addresses that. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. These are some of the pitfalls that he warns about once, once you understand that the church is the people and we have a purpose. And he says, all right, let's, let's put some preventions in place. Let's, let's, let's have some checks. One of the pitfalls can be spiritual immaturity. And he addresses that. He says, hey, a healthy church is a bunch of people that are actually growing in it. Paul uses the word children sort of to capture that spiritual concern that we don't always stay babies. Unhealthy churches are where people Resemble, resemble the behavior of children. They respond to conflict the way children respond to conflict. And they respond to correction the way children respond to correction. And Paul is saying it's time for the church to grow up. And in growing up, there are some things, there are some preventions in place. A healthy churches where people are helping one another grow up into maturity. So while we start as spiritual children, we grow up, as he said, into mature manhood. Paul uses the analogy of waves tossing people to and fro. The picture here is of a person who is just influenced by everything that comes along. Which is why previously he said, hey, you need some good leaders in place. And that's why I stressed, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna go to a new church, or if you're, you should make sure your leaders are in line with Scripture. You should make sure that they're solid in the Word, because there's something real about that. When we begin to get tossed by a wave, there there's some prevention there. Maybe it's a brother or sister sitting in the congregation with us that says, hey, whoa, hit the brakes on that one. Let me tell you why. That's not somebody trying to limit you. Somebody trying to love you. Maybe it's a cultural issue. Maybe, maybe we're tossed by, we get, we get hooked into whatever is trending or popular or whatever it is. Maybe there's a prevailing worldview that draws us in. That's, we say, oh, that kind of makes sense. But it doesn't when brought up against the Word of God. And so there are some preventions in the, word of, in, in the body of Christ 
that keep us from continuing in our immaturity. Spiritual maturity looks like being so anchored in the Word of God. Being so anchored in what you believe that anywhere you go, you are the same person. What's interesting is there are people out there that will say, you know Dan McGann? It's one of my, one of my mom's biggest. She goes to the grocery store up in New Hampshire and maybe write a check. It's like a piece of paper where people write. Oh, okay. Anyway, she'll write a check and the girl will go, McGann, oh, are, are you relation to Dan McGann? My mom says, every time that moment happens to her, her heart sinks. She wants to know whether it was somebody that knew you before you knew Jesus or after you knew Jesus. She says, my heart sinks every time someone says, I said, Mom, I am so sorry that your heart sinks when someone asks if you're my mom or if you're related to me. Because I clearly was an unstable person and I, I was not consistent across the board. But what's interesting is that you can be true to the Word of God and people's perceptions of you can be different. Because you could go out here and ask two, 200 different people if they know me, and if 200 of them said yes, probably 20 of them wouldn't like me. Maybe more. My wife's probably going, hey, bring that number, 50, 60. But it's not because I'm different with them than I am with the others. It's because it's consistency and perception collide. We should be the same. We should be so grounded that we are the same. Our answer to this group is the same answer to this group. Not, not this is the answer they want and this is the answer they want. This is the truth. Some groups will receive it differently than other groups. Verse 14, he talks about that problem of human cunning and the craftiness and deceitfulness and, and even the, 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 the constant, particularly in our culture, of, of the demonization of the truth. We should consistently represent the truth. And when you do, you won't always be popular with every group. And I think what Paul warns us about is don't be the church that everybody likes. That's a dangerous place to be. If you're the church that everybody likes, you're probably not the church. So, how does this happen practically? You're at school, you're at work, you're around people that have a different view than the Bible, you, you are inundated maybe in an organization that 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 is not a fan of the truth and we can sort of raise our eyebrows sometimes this has happened even to me that's a good point i ought to think about that but here is where maturity takes over it is not sin for you to raise your eyebrow and go huh maybe they're right it is sin for you not to go to the Word of God to be corrected. Let me just jump into their doctrine. Let me just jump into their. Let me just jump into their into their organization, and let me just surround myself with all of that. If it says, "Huh," if your spiritual eyebrow gets raised, the Word of God is where you go to correct that, to either bring it back down or to raise it higher. So, we get engaged, we're surrounded, and there are preventions in place. Oftentimes, we view that word as negative. We view the word prevention as a negative thing. Nobody has an issue with going to the zoo and being prevented from climbing the really big fence with the razor wire on the top so that lion doesn't make you breakfast. No one has a problem with that. Matter of fact, 
I appreciate the person at the zoo who keeps me from getting side-smacked in the face by an elephant trunk by putting a big wall between me and that elephant. Oftentimes it's a big chasm. It's this big opening that I couldn't cross and the elephant couldn't cross without somebody who's watching that chasm seeing either one of us enter it. Nobody has a problem with that. Those same types of things are in place in the spiritual body of God. And yet we buck against them. We're constantly trying to climb over them. We're constantly trying to fight against them. Or complaining that they even exist in the first place. I would never want to go to a zoo that didn't put something to prevent my ignorance because that's what it is. I'm, I'm ignorant. I don't know anything about lions. I'm, I'm not a, there's a, the zookeeper's on the other side of the fence, by the way, because he knows about those things. He knows what to do, what food to avoid, what not to smell like. He knows what to do. I don't. I'm ignorant to those things. Now, if I want to go, and I want to become a zoologist, then I go to school and I learn how to get on the other side of that fence. But there are preventions in place for a purpose. There are people that say, hey, 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 think twice about that before you start getting into that. Those people aren't trying to be nosy. They're trying to be loving. Someone that's pointing you and saying, hey, I challenge that against Scripture. They're not, they're not, they're pointing you to Scripture. They're pointing you to the right place. I was involved when I first became a believer in a, in a sect that was super, super, super over the top. Matter of fact, they were, they were, the worst thing they ever did was tell me to read my Bible. Because the more I read it, the more I wanted to get away from them. They were pointing me to it, trying to justify their crazy reasoning for what they were doing. And in fact, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and saying, this is not even, they're totally botching that. This is what, the worst thing they ever did was point me to Scripture for them, because I left their sect and I got out from underneath of their grip. Because the Word of God is alive and it feeds us. So lastly, let's see this picture that God has painted for His church. This text leaves us with this compelling picture of what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. Look at verse 15 and 16. He's identifying this beautiful culture of church culture. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful picture God painted for His church. The miracle of the church is the way in which the life and likeness of Jesus is formed in His people. They grow up into every way to be like Him. Going back to what John Piper said, then the church smells like Jesus. The church, therefore, is not a place with a bunch of perfect people showing off their perfection. It is a place where people are shaped into the image of their Savior. It is a place where we recognize His necessary death for our sinful response in creation. The church, therefore, is not a place for perfect people. The church is made perfect by a perfect person. The culture of the church is marked by speaking the truth in love. And this is a practice of prevention and it is a practice of protection. This means that we lovingly connect or reconnect people to the truth of the Gospel. That means they either come to a knowledge of the saving knowledge of Jesus and then, or maybe there are some that have been disconnected. They have been tossed by a wave. And we are reconnecting them with the truth of the Gospel. It doesn't mean telling people what they need to hear 
It means telling them what God wants them to hear. That may be part of it, but it also means creating an entire culture that is marked by the kind of grace and truth that was displayed by Christ Himself. You can see it in John chapter 1. The culture of the church is so characterized by something bigger than, than the world. It is like no other organization that exists because it is a living institution. The whole body is working together, working properly, and building itself up in love for the glory of God. So you see what Paul's driving at here? Do you get a sense of the mission of God? Do you get a sense of our purpose? People gathered on a common purpose with preventions in place so that we can see the full picture. You know, you won't enjoy the beauty of that lion in the zoo from the inside of him. You will enjoy the beauty of that lion because there is a fence between you and him. And there is protection there. And then you can see the beauty of Him and His element. So can I invite you to do some soul searching in the coming weeks? We're going to continue through Ephesians. There's going to have challenge after challenge after challenge for us. It's going to be a great summer. And I know that we're going to be busy with vacations and visiting family and finally breaking out from underneath the, the pandemic rules. Maybe you're on the back end of a hard year of isolation. Maybe you're ready to... You're the bull that's in that cage and those... Uh, you know. Can you take some time right now to consider your passion level and what is that passion about? Is it self-serving? You know, when we isolate ourselves, we can become all about us. We can become very, very, very selfish people. Is our passion to do everything we want to do? Or is our passion about lifting up our brothers and sisters in Christ and taking the message of the Gospel to an unbelieving world? Has that passion been bridled? Or has it been the, the, the passion of selfishness? If you're a believer in Christ, think about that. In fact, that's why you're here today. To build one another up. Now, you may be someone who the Lord has been calling for quite some time. We, we saw it in Romans chapter 8 when, when, when Mike read it. Whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, He justified. And whom He justified, He glorified. The calling is coming to you right now. And maybe you just need to trust in that. Maybe you need to accept that and be justified. Justified never sin. Why not become a follower of Jesus? Why not be entered into this family that loves one another, grows one another? You have leaders that are patching wounds. And secondly, you might be a follower of Jesus whose passion is already intact. Your heart has not been staled by isolation. It's been a long time since you've been able to really get out there and get your evangelist wings flying in the wind. I want to challenge you that you be sure that you have a landing gear. I want to issue a challenge to you as well. You might be sitting there right now and say, man, I, I'm actually stronger through this pandemic. I'm like, ah, I, I, this has actually been greater for me. Be sure that the power that you are ex experiencing is the power we talked about a couple weeks ago. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And finally, being a part of a church is more than just what you get out of Sunday. It's more than a status quo. It's more than being able to say, I've been at that church for this amount of time. I have been a member of the church of God from the time I said that I believed in Him. It has manifested itself in several local bodies, but I have been a member of God's church ever since. See today, hear today, that the people of God, operating in the purpose of God, 
using the preventions given by God are helping you to see the picture that God has painted for His church. And it might mean, it might mean that there is some repentance on our part. It might mean that there is some repentance on our part. So are we equipped for the work of the ministry? That's the last question I'm going to ask. If you are sitting here right now and you can't answer that question, yes, then it needs to change. You need to be discipled. And if you don't feel equipped for the work of the ministry, a good starting place is to hit one of your leaders up and say, I don't feel equipped for the work of the ministry. You know why? Because that's our job. And if you don't feel equipped for the work of the ministry, don't lie to your leaders. Let us know so that we can respond and help you be equipped for the work of the ministry to be made sufficient. So would you pray with me that God would help us know whatever that next step is for you, whether it's salvation, whether it is motivation, whether it is repentance, whatever that next step is, would you help us create a disciple-making culture that would grow us in the likeness of Jesus so that the glory of God would be shown throughout our community and our world? Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, that in this small passage of Scripture we can see so much of You pouring out on us as if salvation wasn't enough. Being saved from eternal separation of You. As if that wasn't enough. You then surround us with people who will love us like You love us. Will encourage us and strengthen us. Challenge us. As if salvation wasn't enough. You, you then let us be in the church. So Lord, we, we repent of what we haven't been as a church and we, we repent of what we haven't done to bring glory to You and we seek to be a glorifying body. We seek to be a group of people who will love and uplift one another. Who will speak the truth in love when it stings and when it is met with open arms. And Father, we thank You ultimately that we don't have to walk on eggshells, that our salvation in You is secure, and Your desire to pour out grace on us is forever. And so God, I just ask that You would take the words that were spoken today, that You would move in the hearts of Your children and move in the hearts of those that need to be Your children. In Jesus' name, Amen.